uh, question, what do, you do, what do you do with people in the therapeutic situation that are in gale force winds that could not even be able to focus or even be interested in focusing on breath, yes? What can you do for those individuals? Okay. Let me tell you about, I told this to, to, to Bill, let me tell you about a story of a lady that came to retreat many years ago who was a yoga teacher and wanted to uh, meditate and be part of the retreat and very unsettled, very anxiety-ridden, in difficult states. A body racked with pain, all kinds of difficulties. So I thought, okay, let's have everybody start with something like gentle breathing on the back, what I call ocean-side breathing, a little bit of gentle pelvic rocking, very gentle, moving the body, feeling the breath. And she went into a panic attack, started passing out, with that. Every time she tried, she'd pass out. Wow. Okay. So she came. She's a difficult problem, and I, I could see that. And uh, so I, I thought, I just, okay, what can we do for her? And I said to her, uh, you're having a really hard time meditating. She says, yeah, impossible. I said, well, what would you like to do? Oh, I'd like to meditate. No, no, but what would you like to do? What would be, what do you feel would you like I don't know. I said, well, what do you like to do in life? I don't know anymore. Well, can you remember a time when you were happy? No, not really. Can you remember your childhood when you enjoyed something? She said, yes, horseback riding. I used to love horseback riding. So I went, fine, great. So I called up the place where there's horseback riding down the road and sent her down the road, and that's what she did for three days while we're meditating. She went horseback riding every day. And guess what? She came back happy. She came back relaxed. She came back with joy. And she discovered she wanted to now do horseback riding. Now, what's the moral in the story? Is that sometimes you have to really go outside the box. Not just think about meditation. Not just think about the therapeutic situation. Uh, something physical, something grounding, something that doesn't involve obvious concentration, obvious concentration, that brings about physical contact, brings about joy, that's an avenue in for a person to rediscover what they like. So when people say to me, oh, uh, hi, what do you do? I heard you're a meditation teacher. I, I go, just a minute. Because a lot of what I do is not just teach meditation, is I help people peel back the impediments in their life to the right-hand column that have nothing to do with meditation, seemingly. <coughs> and what we talk about in the teaching of, of Dharma is that the impediments to meditation are often deeply conditioned impediments, which may actually involve therapy for a time, but may be a year of horseback riding. I once gave a lady in Canada who came to me, a very bright person, capable person, meditating for many years, said, what kind of meditation should I do now? I looked at them and I went, don't. I said, what I, what I recommend you do as a meditation for a couple of years, not because she was really having a problem. Her problem was more to do with sensory, in touchment, and grounding, and 
getting away from trying to have mystical states. So what came up in my mind, this is how I do things with people, I don't think we think it, is I saw pottery, I saw pots. So I said, ah, make 108 pots. <laughs> she was shocked. She's never touched clay in her life, and she wasn't that kind of craftsperson. She said, are you kidding? I said, no, make 108 pots. That will take care of it. And then we can talk about what kind of meditation. That will be your meditation for a couple of years. So she listened, and she did. Today, she's emerging as one of Canada's finest potters. She's a professional potter. She teaches, and she's exhibiting all over. And that's what she does now. She just fell in love with it. Now, I'm not saying that was the purpose of it, but it actually helped her get through a growth period, a developmental period that she needed to do in her life that had nothing to do with formally sitting and meditating and being in retreats. So do I have an answer for you? No. <laughs> Except that you have to think out, not think, feel outside the box and look at a person and go, this is my what dilemma every day, all day long with people, is what does that person need in their life to grow? It might be science. It might be mathematics. It might be psychotherapy. It might be going and taking four years of Feldenkrais. It might be going, uh, many people come to me, especially women, and they come to me and they ask me, what should I do about meditation? I say, the first thing you need to do is you need to go study kendo. You know, kendo with a sword? Kendo, uh, uh, the martial art of, of the sword, yeah, with a shnai, which is a ba triple bamboo stick, and you hit each other. Hard, you wear masks. Hard, you learn how to attack, and you learn how to be attacked with clarity. And, and loving kindness. Beautiful practice. So, spiritual growth and the therapeutic question is not always about the modality. It's about what does that individual need at that given time for their life, which may change six months from there. How do you know that as a therapist? You might actually be breaking some of the boundaries of the therapeutic situation. You might be ruining your certification. It's possible. Uh, some people I know that are therapists, when they feel it's time for the client or the patient to enter into meditation and spiritual life, they then make some suggestions, which may not be appropriate. I don't know, because I, I don't know the board certification rules. But uh, why don't you go and try that teacher, that teacher, that teacher? That's my, that's my suggestion. How you do that is you need to get your intuition level up. You need to get to the place where you're no longer present. The question is present, and you wait for the sign. The, we call it nimitta in, in uh, Sanskrit. You wait for the sign to arise clearly without your ego attachments. That means you have to have a really, really emptied out space for that, to let that arise. What, so your question is, what, what does that being need right now, at this time, if they'll listen to you? And then you have to trust your intuition from a place of spontaneity, which may not even be right now. It might be two days. 
my teacher used to do that to me too sometimes. I'd say, uh, I've got a question. He said, that's it. Don't even ask. I'll tell you later. I'd wait. I'd wait. I'd wait. Two weeks later, having a meal, he'd walk up and go, da 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 Because that's when it happened. Or be right there on the spot. Eat more broccoli and stick it up your nose. Whatever it is. Whatever it is. Who knows? It can be absolutely nutty. One recommendation, if I have any major recommendation, and I've had to do this with, with uh, people that are uh, schizophrenics and, and psychotic episodes, is whatever you do, and I think some of you practice this already, is body. Grounding in the body. Whatever you do, they need to be physically grounded and present in their bodies and learning to enjoy the body. Because a lot of this is disassociation from the body. A lot of what people are facing today in all kinds of difficulties is a brain and a head split off from a body. They don't even know they have a body. They're talkers like this. They live in a conceptual fantasy world that's so deep that they don't even know that they have a body. They can't feel it. They don't know if it's pleasurable or painful anymore. You put a bit of food in their mouth and they don't know whether it's good food or not so good food or who cares or they bump into things, and so on. Someone recently, when I was visiting out east, was uh, tripping over their feet. They'd be walking, and other people were noticing that. They'd just fall over, trip over like this, and stumble and fall over. And they thought maybe a brain tumor, or maybe um, some serious thing that they might have to go and seek medical attention for, because they were fall falling and stumbling. So I walked with the person, I was just walking with them somewhere, and I noticed that their feet were crossing like this, occasionally. I could see it beginning to happen. So I said, can I just spend a half an hour or 10 minutes with you? To just, do you interested in this? So I just readjusted their feet a little bit, their hands, and uh, five minutes later, just helped them walk a little bit, and it's gone. Total disassociation beginning. No linkage between the head and the body. I, for everybody I know, whether they're really good meditators, whether they're really good beings and really healthy, always is returning constantly to body and touchment. Because that's most of where the problems arise, is disassociation. A, a head thinking, walking around with no grounding. Whether that's horseback riding, whether that's pottery, whether that's art, whether that's craft, whether it's skydiving, whether it's hang gliding. I can just see it as a therapist. Go, go hang gliding and they have an accident and you get sued. Uh, but you know, better to prescribe drugs because then you wouldn't. My pet peeves, how quickly we prescribe drugs. Coffee is a good one. Water skiing, downhill skiing. And here's something else I wanted to mention tonight. Remember I started off about, uh, and Michael was quite clear on this, the art or the craft of therapy is not so much about a technique, about your ability to be empath empathic, unified with the client, feel what they're going through, and seek an intuitive way 
body response, body witnessing, uh, the subtle changes in body and mind feel, and find your way for them to trust you and to you open up to what needs to be done. Yes? Right? It's an art. So, too, how you approach that, how you get out of the box and look at a person and go, what do they need to do to grow is a really important question. Where's therapy going? Maybe therapy is going to go into a very, very, very big multidisciplinary uh, model that breaks out of one discipline or another and actually sees people as something growing. Maybe one of the best things that a therapist can do is grow themselves. I would say that's probably the best thing, is the more the therapist can actually liberate themselves and grow and become a really loving, aware human being, the effect on their clients is going to be profound. Because that's what I believe 90% of it's all about anyways, is the dialogue between the therapist and the client. When the match is good, it goes really well. When the match is not good, get out of there. No different than with an acupuncturist. No different than with a Feldenkrais practitioner. It's not so much the technique, is it, after a while? Uh-uh. It's something very, very different. And the same thing with a lama or with a guru or with a spiritual teacher. It's very little anymore about technique. It's about the mind, feel of the mind, and the relationship that you have. The case. Maybe even 98%. So what does that do for you? If that's the case, then what kind of statement am I making here? The more the therapist explores and unfolds, the more repertoire of insight and intuition they will have for everybody that comes to them. And some people you will not be able to help except say, go see so-and-so. Same thing happens with me. People come to me and I go, you know, so-and-so teacher would be really <laughs> good for you or some psychotherapy would be excellent. But other, I recognize certain people there's not a good fit. There's not a match. I help send them on their way to see somebody else or suggest, why don't you go see somebody else and try something else? You have to get realistic about it because a lot of what's happening is a psychological energy match. And when it's good, it's great. You might want to call it transference. I, I kind of like that word and I kind of go, mm, not the whole thing. But when that connection is there, it's a glorious experience. Would you, would you say yes to that? Yeah? It's beautiful, beautiful experience. And then we might not even call it therapy anymore. We just call it growth. We're exploring how does a person grow. I'd say the therapist also gets a lot of growth out of that too, don't they? Amazing. So again, no technique. But uh, a, a bit of a, a bit of a view there. A bit of a view. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? 
Yes. About anchors for ships? Just get you really frustrated. Did you say anchor like the anchor company that was it make milk products? Anchors? Pardon? Oh, sardines. Oh, okay. Anger? No. Anger. Yes, I heard it the first time. I didn't succeed. Oh. <laughs> oh, good. What anger? Sure, would you like with that something that you're interested in? Okay, let me go to the, let me walk around a little bit. No? Answers no? She's angry. Oh, you're just angry about that question. Pardon? Yes, please go ahead. going to enter into deep, deep, mysterious and dark waters. Are you ready? Okay. There is, you know the word, par you're all familiar with the word paradigm? Yeah. You all know that word paradigm, yes? The model that a field holds or a group of people hold that they don't really even know that they hold. I'll tell you a funny story. This is what happens in the evening. I like to tell stories. My dear, beloved root teacher, Namjoon Rinpoche, George, <laughs> who would be lecturing and hollering at you right now to get you all mad, but uh, he would, wouldn't he? Yes, he'd get you very mad. What the hell do you think you're asking that question for, Saskia? Oh, shut up. Just to see if, how you're doing there. But one day, one day, my dear beloved teacher was waxing, giving the most eloquent discourse on the nature of suchness. I can remember this beautifully. It was glorious. It was, a, it was the most beautiful mind transmission of totality. And he was flying. He was just in his element. And near the end, he's kind of winding it down. And someone in the back puts their hand up and says, Sir, could you talk about our emotions? He goes, what? Anyways, he gives a little bit of a thing on emotions like <clears throat> crimson. 
And he gets back, get back in the car, drive over the house, and he sits down. He wasn't so well at that point. Sits down on the couch like this. He says, Mark, come on over. I sit down over here and he says, Mark, tell me, tell me. Now, he's been teaching for a long time, and a brilliant therapist, by the way. He goes, he's tired. You can tell he's tired. He goes, tell me, do they really believe that emotions exist? I said, yes, indeed, they do, sir. Yes, he goes, oh, no. I'm going to my room. Oh, no, no, no. It It was a very funny moment. Of course, he was, he was acting, but he actually meant it. The, the paradigm that's very, very strong in the Western world is that, e- one, emotions truly exist. Self truly exists. Self is the center of the universe, even though we're told it isn't. Right? We're living in a culture, we're living in a time where self is the focal point, me. And I've got problems, and I need to solve them. And you know what? That's actually relatively true for a lot of beings. That whole model that we grew up in, you have to understand, I think you all do, know that that is a culturally imbued model of how we look at the world. Some other cultures, although we're pretty homogeneous now around the planet, when you go to the East, it's the Western world. (laughs) Let's make no mistake about it. When you go and visit McDonald's, which I don't, but I sometimes pass by, I did have a Starbucks for the first time in two years at the Toronto airport just to see what that was like. But I haven't experimented with McDonald's for about 20 years. There's no real purpose in that. But uh, that's another story. The notion that that emotion, such as rage, such as anger, such as greed, such as pride, that are actually real entities that arise and pass away, is pretty much a Western point of view. And it's actually quite strong among many therapists. Maybe they'll say ultimately it's not real, but it's important. It is something that we need to talk about a lot, something that we need to deal with a lot, and so on. From the standpoint of meditation and classic meditative outlook, it's not that emotions should be shoved away, but they're so poisonous that giving them more credence, giving them more due than they deserve has a great danger. So there's a Western attitude in that way, which I think is mistaken, but I can see where it comes from, that whenever an emotion arises among Buddhists, you know how that is? Buddhists? Ah, there is no emotion. And I have no emotion, and I should have no emotion. Yes? Let's squash it. Let's suppress emotion. And I've I've heard many therapists who've told me that's what Buddhists do. They suppress emotions. They deny that emotions exist and they suppress it. That couldn't be further from the truth. Have you gone and visited some Buddhist teachers of good attainment? 
what's it like? Is it kind of dry, unemotional, dull, kind of flat, non-human? What would be a characteristic of people that have done a lot of meditation and have taught Dharma and are teachers of liberation? What's one characteristic of them? Quirky. <laughs> it's good I don't know any of them. Very human. <laughs> Very human. Laugh a lot. What else? Childlike. What else? Passionate. Passionate. Energy. Yeah. Passionate. Full of life. Yeah. Okay. They're human. They're human. And what would you say? They actually have emotions. I've seen the Dalai Lama in front of 20,000 people. I was just about this far away. Crying his eyes out when he talked about his teachers. He talked about his teachers and he was crying. Streams coming down. Here's this so-called enlightened being, of great attainment, beautiful human being, crying. Just oh, he's just crying of joy and sadness. You know, and just enjoy it. And then all of a sudden went, Okay, now back to the nature of emptiness. It was beautiful to see. But here, no problem displaying the fact that he was both sad and happy at the same time and going through this in front of 20,000 people. So isn't that curious? Emotional. Have you ever seen a teacher mad? Like, really mad? <laughs> ever had a teacher throw the... Sanskrit dictionary at your head? Or a big bowl of water, offering water, and just whap. Rice? <laughs> Who did that? Should be up on abuse charges. Huh? Excuse me, I am slipping. So really, is it about the emotion, or is it about what that emotion actually is, and what can we do about it? Because we don't want to take away the humanness out of the humans. We don't want to rob the life and the humanness out of humans. We want to transform it so it's a live, living human being. Not a dull, lifeless skeleton. And I w would, you, would you agree? You can just, uh, please disagree any time. I believe that a lot of Westerners are absolutely terrified about being emotional beings. They are really terrified about the energy behind rage and frustration and greed and very difficult states. They're terrified of it. They spend a lot of time squashing it or dumping it on anybody they can find to dump it on. So we live in a very strange time. And I'm not sure that 50 years or 100 years or 2,000 years ago wasn't a very strange time either. Okay? There was raging emotions then. So what do we mean by anger? What actually is anger? Let's, let's look at it. What do we know about anger today? It's a physical sensation. What comes with anger? Yes, but what comes along usually with a rage or angry state? Negative connotations, but what comes up? Who said stories? Stories. Thoughts. Isn't that right? What would happen if you had pure anger? Tell me, what's it like to have pure anger and no 
thought at all. Hmm? A lot of fun, isn't it? What does it feel like afterwards? Amazing. The, the flow that goes through your being. Not a story, just pure, unadulterated anger. Because it's moving in a way that is cutting off something. But what we, what we want to know is the effect afterwards. Okay? Now, we have to watch for this. Because if there's a story behind the anger, watch out. You know how destructive anger... I've had actually therapists tell me, and some eminent ones, saying, you know, Mark... Anger is really necessary. Not only is it necessary, but if you don't have it, you're not alive. And so is jealousy, and so is pride. I said, great. We live in a world where we're being ripped apart by anger. Do we all know how poisonous anger is? We all know, right? Let's not make a mistake about it. An anger is like sitting on an atomic weapon. An atomic weapon, if it's used, is used out of what mental state? Anger. It's not used out of compassion. Fear is anger. Let's, let's first of all clear the ground how dangerous anger is. Why it's called a poison. Anger is known to kill people to eat people up physically and destroy their lives, correct? You all know that. Yeah, that's great. Mature audience that knows what I'm talking about. Anger is very toxic. It's like a toxic waste of radioactive plutonium. It infects. It makes people sick. It makes people sick around us. And it destroys lives. Angry in a bar, a little bit intoxicated, get in a car, drive, and kill two or three people either bumping into their car, smashing their car, smashing through a plate glass in a restaurant, whatever it is, taking out a gun and killing your family. I used to live in a place in the, in the Arctic where it wasn't that uncommon to hear gunshots. And usually when we did, it meant that the man of the household had taken his rifle and killed himself uh, and everybody with him. <coughs> It's very destructive. What do we have happening in the world today that is a manifestation of anger? We have wars all over the world. Wars. Anger. Anger. Frustration and fear. It's, it's a pestilence. It's a toxic disease. In the tradition of insight meditation, the tradition of Buddha Dharma, anger is considered a poison, like a, like a venom from a poisonous snake. In that sense, it's a dangerous cocktail to play around with and foment. I love that word, foment. At the same time, the energy behind anger is tremendous, ang is tremendous energy. Right? It's phenomenal energy. And when it can get released, as you said, it's a lot of fun. Because the anger that was destructive can now be used to move aside things that need to be moved quickly and don't respond to 
how are you? That's so sweet that you're chopping off the person's head. That's so nice that you're drunk. Or that is so lovely. We're all in it together. There's some things that just don't work hmm? with peace and sweetness. The anger that you have is, again, as you all know, is stored in the nervous system. And it can be sparked like that with a story, a repetitive habitual story, or it can be sparked by frustration in the body held that then leads to a story which generates more neurohormone secretion and keeps it going until it goes to a full-blown rage and that what has to happen. All those chemicals have to be digested, absorbed, especially by the liver, especially by the kidneys, taken out of the system. 20 minutes, an hour later, two hours later, the chemical levels fall, and you go, what was that all about? So what do we need to do to actually dissolve the spark, the basis of anger? How's that going to happen? cognitively by thinking your way out of this one? Who here feels, please, go ahead. Who here feels at this point in our understanding and experience that you can think your way out of emotional storms? Have you seen it? Okay. What's the way? Have you, in your experience, seen a decrease of anger either in your life or in others, where it's actually gone from a high level like this? Maybe not completely gone, but to a place of great diminishment. Who has seen that either in yourselves or others and goes, this can be done? Great. That's fantastic. How many people in the room, this is a huge paradigm, shift for a Westerner, especially a therapist, trained therapist, how many people believe in this room that anger could actually be freed out of the nervous system? That's pretty amazing. Theoretical or for truth? Okay. That's something. And a lot of therapists I've met would say that's absolute nonsense. It's absurd. It's wrong as anti-life. Isn't that interesting? Fantastic. Where, is the, where are the stories and the chemical secretions being held that are going to trigger it? Outer, inner, and secret. Where, where are the stories and the physical trigger mechanisms being held in your being before the anger erupts? In the body, in the nerves, in the inner, in the veins, in the vessels, in the secret level, in the three major channels in the, in the, and in the fine channels that come off it. What do we need to do? I'm talking very classically now. I'm talking from a, uh, a Buddhist meditation perspective of the last 25 years. What is the tradition by hundreds and hundreds of accomplished yogis? What will they tell you? They'll tell you the same thing. 
You have to clear it literally out of your inner veins. How do you do that? The breath must circulate. It must circulate through your veins to the point where it actually clears the channels like clearing creosote out of stovepipes. And you know what happens because the, the pipes, the veins, burst through with energy. And those sensations just don't happen anymore. They just don't happen. But that doesn't mean that you can't use the sharp edge of the sword to cut through when you need to. Now, I was given a demonstration. I was given a demonstration because there is frustration. I hope you all still get frustrated. Physiologically frustrated because what you're encountering is suffering. That you have a body that still knows when someone is committing or someone's entering into a state of suffering or committing suffering for other people and it needs to be stopped. And the delusion is too high to say, could you please stop that? Or could you please change that? And they come at you with a knife. Or poison. Or a gun. Have you been verbally attacked? Have you been physically attacked? I know teachers who've actually been physically attacked and punched out and threatened when they've actually challenged some, some, some people. It's dangerous, yes. That's right, as does fear, which is really useful when there is a lion nearby and you've got to get out of there. Or you're in a situation where your body is uncomfortable and telling you, get out. Or this isn't a good situation. Or the minds that I'm with are actually really dangerous minds. You need discernment. And your body needs to feel that primitive belly response, primitive limbic system response that goes, I smell a dirty rat. You know that one, the, the mafia boss? Who is it? Smell a dirty rat. And that's, and that's something that we have in us. We're able to actually smell, pick up messages of things that aren't right. And you might pick that up in your body as a deep frustration that something is really wrong. It stinks. You should rely on smell. It stinks. It's rotten and it stinks. And you're going to need to move fast and you're going to need to move swiftly. That will be expressed as anger. How do you know the difference when it's clear or not clear? It's physiological. What's the difference? When anger is clear, but it's expressed, what's the after effects compared to normal anger rage? How fast? Like that. And it flows through the body, through the veins, and it feels like clear energy. And it leaves you in a good state with a good feeling in your being that something has been cleared. The air has been cleared. Because the next time might be, that's really good, and loving and warm and friendly. And the next time might be power. And the next time might be anger. And the next time might be loving and supportive. You need that full capability 
as a human being to express emotions without the toxins that come out of emotions. This is only, this is not taught. So let me tell you now classically. This is not taught this way in the tradition of the Theravadins, of the elders. It's taught from the Mahayana and the Vajrayana point of view that came later. Okay? We call these different turnings the wheel. Okay? It was obviously appropriate teaching for that time. The art of being able to be a fully emotional being and be able to have that energy wash through is a very powerful tool for compassion. For compassion. If you're not disturbed normally, but you do get disturbed in certain situations and it resolves and you feel great, and your heart really knows, and later knows by confirmation, that was the best thing you could have done for that person, or that situation. You gain confidence in this. You gain confidence. But this is really high teaching, because the delusion around the use of anger, greed, rage, lust, pride, and jealousy is very dangerous because it's very easy for practitioners of spiritual traditions to mistake or believe that they've cleared it when in fact they haven't. I had a great lesson from my teacher when I was maybe 19, 20. We were in a room full of people. Someone that was not afraid to express their emotion, believe me. You know that, right, asking. And I remember him, I was sitting here, and I remember him chewing somebody out over here for a very good purpose. Somebody had done something really nasty in them. And he was on a tear. I it was fierce. It was really fierce. And I was sitting here going, Whoa, is he angry, my, my dear teacher, great Buddhist meditation master. And while he was doing this, he, he half his face smiled and winked at me like this <coughs> and kept at it. It was one of the most beautiful displays of cutting through a mind that was not moving was not getting what they were doing and showing me at the same time it was absolutely calm, relaxed, and clear. That was fantastic to see. And I've seen him, I saw him do this in other ways oh, many times where the only way I could see through the situation was to show his seriousness, his intent, his commitment to the release of suffering, to what somebody would know as being serious, which is anger. I once had to say this to staff at a school where I worked. Someone was breaking the law. One of the faculty members was breaking the law. I repeatedly, gently kept sending memos out 
please don't keep breaking the law. You're putting me in a difficult position as the executive director. We're breaking the law. I will, I will get hit on this one. They kept doing it. Ha, 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 who cares? So I went to a faculty meeting. I was talking politely. We need to stop doing this, please. People, you know how this? A little bit past aggression. What did I do? I said, that's enough. Now I'm really mad. And the only way that you're going to get it to your heads is because I'm really pissed off now. And I laced in them. And that was the only way and it changed. Walked out. Fine. Worked. Thank goodness. At least I didn't get sued or anything. But because I wouldn't take it seriously. Nice, peaceful, sweet. So, in the teaching of teaching of Vajrayana, in the mandala of what we call transcendent wisdom, for purposes of compassion, you need four qualities of emotional being that get raised to an enlightened level, a free level. A well-endowed, rich human being in the tradition of Tantra, the tradition of Buddhist Tantra, and what's called Vajrayana, most of which comes from Tibet today. It came out of Tibet, but it came from India. It's been taught for thousands of years. Is There are four wisdom aspects for a richly endowed human being which are not easily, to, not easily integrated. These are not easy ones to integrate because most people are terrified of a few. We all know about peacefulness. I, it's all nice, it's all sweet. No matter what you do, to me or others, it's fine. Blow up a planet, that's fine. Have another war, that's fine. It's all loser, it's all loser anyways. Step on my toes, that's fine. A little lack of awareness, that's okay. Yes? But nothing disturbs. You need that. You need a level of unperturbability, a level of profoundly deep calm, where you're not shifted and swayed and buckled and moved with everything that comes along. Yes? Okay. Profound tranquility and peacefulness in the being. Another quality is richness. Profound ability to feel very richly endowed with knowledge, with prosperity, 
with all the kinds of things that you need to live the life that you need to live, including teachings and workshops and everything else. Yeah? Richly endowed. How many people in the room feel rich? Just feel absolutely like the universe feeds you and that you can feed others that richness. How to unfold, how to grow, how to do this and how to do that, yes? This is what we mean by, by richness. The ability to help people unfold. Okay? So not only do you need to know peacefulness, but you need to have the skill to teach peacefulness to others. Okay? How you get there. In the same way, not only do you need to be rich and richly endowed at many different levels, how do you help a person become a rich human being? I don't mean necessarily money. Rich. Deeply rich. And I'm looking at a lot of rich people in this room. It's beautiful. Who spend their days helping other people be rich. What a, what a great, generous thing. Great bodhisattva. It's marvelous. Power. How many people in this room feel powerful? Feel strong and full of power? Not so common. Not so common sight. How many people do you know are willing to take power and use it wisely? Western problem. We want to give people power, but we don't want them to have any authority over us. We want people to be very powerful, but we hate their guts when they do it. And with politicians, we cut them down the minute they have power. Sometimes they deserve it. Sometimes they don't. Very difficult thing for many Westerners. Many Westerners don't want any power. They're terrified of it. They're terrified to hold positions of power okay. and strength. A lot of confidence. What is the other aspect of power is the ability to share power and the ability to actually confer power to other people involve other people in that power. Strength. Fierceness, which is what Saskia asked about. The ability to cut through like an axe, the ability to cut through like a sword in situations where the level of delusion, the level of psychosis, the level of paranoia, the level of fear is so strong that the only way to get through it is to blast through it. It's like having a child who repeatedly sticks their finger in an electrical socket and the next time they could die. Would it be sweet and peaceful or maybe it would require a very strong blast? That would be compassionate. Mothers, fathers, you might have to do that sometime. Probably have done that. That's enough. They're, they're, they're often connected, yes. Because you need power for fierceness. As you need peace, these go together. But transcendentally, or at a, at a wisdom level, you, all ha you have to have all these fused. So that is how you know that, that anger or rage 
has been substantially cleared through your nervous system is when you can display it and immediately afterwards it goes through your nervous system like clear water. Not like a toxin. Like clear water and in your heart you go, oh, that was good. That was really good. I busted that up really well. And the next moment you can be peaceful or shining or luminous because you're not stuck to it. Not stuck to it. In some of the teachings of Tantra, especially in, in teachings of Demcho, Kevadra, and so on, they talk about the nine moods of the dance. These are brilliant teachings. I'd love to spend time with you on this. But in the highest yoga tantras, there's a teaching of the nine modes of expression of emotion. And these are things like eroticism, passion, compassion, other aspects, which can be very, very frightening. They're elevated to an enlightened level. And that's what they consider. In other words, when these get elevated to a very high level, then we're talking about a very deep expression of the wisdom mind. See, one thing that's not understood sometimes is that each of these subject areas, each one of these is a vast study. Each one of them leads to compassionate abilities. This is fun. Gosh, I like this. Just making circles around things, eh? as if it's really important. But every one of these things that come up in the oceanic, profoundly settled mind is a seed for the development of different aspects. I could go on. So every one of those experiences that you talked about can take years of practice to unfold into realms that are extraordinary capacities. And each person has specialties. Some people specialize in luminosity. Some people specialize in clarity of mind. Some people specialize in bliss, leading to warmth. Very warm person, very loving person, some people, some great teachers, not very loving so much, very compassionate, full of the sword, but extremely capable of opening people's minds to the essence. Some beings are extraordinarily spacious. You walk in a room, you can feel it. You can feel it from 60 kilometers away. Some people, for instance, like Krishnamurti, just is. Krishnamurti, just is. Just is, just is, just is. Manifested just is. What about thoughts? Just is. What about my difficulties in life? Just is. Genius of just is. Genius of suchness. Okay. Other people spend their time teaching nothingness. But not complete nothingness. Nothingness with something. Each one of these opens up into a wisdom area that will eventually ripen and display itself, manifest itself. None. 
Not necessary. We don't know. They don't know. They don't know. Cheers. Oh, let's get to that. We'll get to conceit maybe tomorrow. How's that? Let's talk about conceit tomorrow. Conceit and pride. That's another one. Needs to be cleared. Conceit and pride. So this is not actually taught that often. All right? It's just not taught. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to teach, but especially to spiritual practitioners, a dangerous one. Because a lot of people then say, well, then I can get mad. I need to practice my anger. I need to practice my lust on every student that comes along because I'm really you know, kind of like a tantric practitioner that needs to elevate it to a high wisdom level. Gads. Okay. So in very, very high teachings, the, these four are considered to be the rich flowering of the wisdom mind. And if you miss one, you've got some weaknesses. And the two biggies for the Western mind that they don't like are which ones? And also richness is a problem because people are very rich, but utterly poverty-stricken in this culture. Addiction. Oh, fierceness? I'm just you're probably thinking about Greek mythology. Greek mythology? Or? Oh, pathology. Pathology. Yes, it might be. It might be, especially Greek mythology, whose, whose children were slain by their parents. Which family tragedy can we imagine happening again and again and again? The worst possible family tragedies in Greek mythology? I mean, look at look what, what look what fierceness can become. Give me some examples of a pathology. Rape. Um, Pardon? Or it can stop rape. Yeah. 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 Under power. <coughs> Paranoia. Yeah. Road rage. What are some of the really hard ones to heal? Tell me, tell me from your experience, what are some of the really hard ones to heal? Really, really tough to heal. Eroticized rage. Ones that don't get healed easily. Tough ones to crack. What would you say? From your experience. Okay. How successful is it for people coming fully out of psychosis? What's the success rate? Fairly good? Only with what? With medication. 
on or off medication? Good point. With, medita with medication or, or off medication? Yep. I, I would like to, I'd like to deal with that. How about we deal with that tomorrow? Yes. Let's look at, at spiritual breakthrough, psychosis, breakdowns, difficult psychological states, and where, what the differences are, and how to spot them. How about we do that? No, but sometimes actually it is uh, a psychotic or a fractured type that pushes themselves chemically, meditatively to create a split which ends them up in the hospital. I've seen it over and over again. As a matter of fact, I've been phoned from the hospital of people that have ended up in the hospital doing this. And very often it turns out that they have a background in terms of psychosis or um, mental instability. Let me, let me say this to you. I'm going to put a, put a proposal out to you from my own experience and, and my, my teacher's experience. Meditation can never do any damage. People do damage. I've never seen a case where meditation has ever been dangerous, no matter how high or advanced. Today you did probably the most advanced meditation you can ever do, by the way. Dharmakaya, the body of truth. And I didn't see any splits. I didn't see anybody in the hospital, although we're missing some people. <laughs> They're okay. We just rushed them. We just, oh, okay, good, good, good. Did you just get them out quickly? Yeah. Excellent. Didn't see any problems. Do you want to know where I see the most difficulties with people? Is teachings on peacefulness. Isn't that extraordinary? Initiations into peaceful meditation figures causes more difficulties than when I give initiations or bestow initiations into fierce meditation forms. Isn't that something? There's a lot of people who are already on the edge that can't handle that level of love. It shocks them. It absolutely terrifies them, that amount of love. When it's fierce, oh, it's right there, you know. I've got to be fierce. But when it comes to just being showered in love, ah, break up. Does that help a bit, Saskia? Can, can, we, can we do it like a, 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 what do they call it in physics, a thought experiment? It could be physical if you can get into it, but a thought experiment. You do know what happens if you catch, what, what stops anger in its tracks and dissolves it? But what does awareness do? Uh, now we're going to get to a really important point. When you become aware of something and you focus on something, what does it actually do physically? It's a really important part for you meditators and for therapists. Hmm? But how does this work? It interrupts what? When a person is in a rage, what's not happening? 
they're not breathing. They're so frozen and stuck, they're not breathing. Right? Right? Right! And if they just sometimes just go like this and breathe, I've watched people do that and they go, oh my God, what happened? It's not even there. I've watched people change the pot, not all the time, not when a full brain, but I've watched people change posture, catch it, and just change posture, say, just stand up, just go like this. And they go, oh my God. It's gone. What happened? It's like, like it just passed. The clearer the channels, the clearer these deep channels are, this is why I emphasize so much breath meditation and the inner body yoga. The faster that these poisons, greed, hatred, delusion, evaporate. And it means one of the signs of spiritual progress is that they start to evaporate as they start faster and faster and faster and faster and faster and just open. The rate in which they, in other words, instead of the rage taking two hours, it takes an hour. And then you notice it takes 45 minutes. It's a gradual path. Then you notice it takes a half an hour. Then 20 minutes. And one day you notice it only takes 15 minutes and maybe only five. And it's a little trickle. These are real things that you measure. Real things. Yes. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah. Usually kill them. Yes. Yes, because because uh, what happens is people are, are involved in the spiritual path and they're suppressing their emotions. And they're getting into the peaceful aspect. And, and I'm, as a teacher, not seeing any indications that something's moving in their being. And I know they're sitting on a mountain of rage or sitting on a mountain of dullness, so dull that they're basically in a fog bank, like looking through thick glasses like this, but they, that's what they're used to, right? Hi, here's the world. Yes? And I love it when, you know, for instance, I'll give you one, one, one time, someone was in retreat, done three retreats over a number of years and came to me and said, I can't believe this. I said, what? I can't believe this. I walk around in a fog all day. I said, hallelujah. I said, I've got a film right over my whole mind. It's like a dull film and I just noticed it finally. I thought it was clear and bright. And here I am walking around and everything I do is covered in a thin film like a gauze. I said, hallelujah, we're beginning. Liberation is at hand. We're beginning. That's important. The recognition of how deep it is. When someone comes to me and says, I am a mountain of rage. I feel it permeating my being. I can feel it in my fingers. I can feel it in the veins going all the way through and right into my heart like channels. I go, hallelujah. And they say, I didn't know it, but when I, when I pick up 
the marker, I pick it up with rage. And when I turn my body, I'm angry. And when I speak to people, I'm not peaceful. I thought it was peaceful. I'm an angry asshole. Fantastic. Are they going to do something about it? I hope so. But that's a, that's a great watershed. That's realizing how much suffering is stored in the being. It's an honest assessment of actually what's present. And then I wait for the next onion peel to come off. Give it a year. Yes, please. Good. Okay. How's that, Saskia? That's uh, fair enough? Okay. So how important is catharsis? How about that one? Should we just, that be the final one? Catharsis. Letting it out. How many of you feel that letting out anger, displaying anger, shouting it, screaming it, displaying lust and greed and all these various things, how effective is that in actually clearing it and releasing it from the system over the long term, from your experience? Who, who are the therapists in the room? Can you, can you talk to me and let me know what you feel about that? I think it's effective if it's based, if it comes from sensation. Okay. They sense it first, but then actually let it out, rather than if it's just a, a rote emotion. Right. So effective if what? Being mindful of sensation? Yes. Okay. It comes from actually sensing it in the body. Yeah. Then it's genuine. Okay. Okay. Anybody else? I'm not even agreeing. I'm just, I just like to hear it. It's really interesting for me. Anything else? Then yes. you depend on the intention for doing that. I think if the intention is to work through it, yes. get angry, you can work through anger and get to the root of the issue. And if, that, if the intention is that, then I think it can definitely be very beneficial. And without an intention, it can just recycle over and over and over again. So that makes a difference. Okay, you've raised a very good point. Are there frustrations in people's lives that when the frustration is removed, the anger goes away? Okay, but is the root of anger gone? In other words, is anger still existing in their system and going to manifest somewhere else? So we remove the object of the frustration, which may be a very worthwhile thing, and their frustration actually may have been a very honest and legitimate frustration, yes? It's now been removed. Does that mean that frustration, anger, has been removed out of the nervous system and is now going to find a way to find another object? Is that the case, usually? Sometimes. Sometimes. Or given enough time. Sometimes. Terry, you wanted to say something. Yes. Yes. For years. That's an immediate feeling of release and calm and lightening up. But it was a long term process of seeing the bodies. And I felt a lot of passion. I felt like it opened a lot of ways. I tended to relate to people in terms of the grief. I tended to attract grief or sinking everywhere. So I, I'm, I did a lot of it. 
Are you ready for a few minutes on this? Are you interested? What I've seen, what we've seen, is sometimes the expression of the emotion can get released at the outer level. Right? It gets released at the outer level and it feels really good. Let's shout it out. Let's get it out. But the storage in the veins shows up in the organs. It's still there, the seeds of it. Sometimes the story isn't released, but it's not just a story. You know, I, I talk about this. I love this in meditation, you know. The mind becomes settled. I'll give you the stages. This is my, these are my, I mean, I can go through the classic nine stages, but it's one of the stages I like. In meditation, you get a settling, and you feel really peaceful. And you get some occasional thoughts. You've had that? Some occasional thoughts? Have you ever had something that comes in a little bit later, maybe a couple days, three, four days, maybe a week later in, in retreat, which I call the golf commentator. The golf commentator. And the golf commentator is you're now very peaceful, but there's a being that's describing how peaceful you are. <laughs> and they're kind of sitting up over here and going, wow, that's really good meditation. You're really good. Maybe not so good. No, yeah, actually. And he go, shut up. I'm, I'm really peaceful. Would you just shut up? And there's a commentator now describing, you got really peaceful, but now there's a commentator describing every move. Like, okay, now they're, they're teeing up. And that's a really quiet voice usually. They're teeing up. And uh, do you notice that the posture is just the right posture? And it, and it will shut up. Shut up. No, no, that's good. Say it more. Say shut up more to me. <laughs> and you go through this for a week or two or three. Some people go for longer. And eventually, the mind calms down again. And you get periods where there's just occasional interruption of some thoughts. But there's a film. Now, some people don't get to see this, but you have to get beyond that. There's a film that's a conceptual film, like a talking but without words behind the background, that's yattering away and making distinctions and judgments without words. But it's really physical. And it's really there, but it can be missed. Now you go, oh, thank God, I'm in a place of no thought. I'm in a place of no thought, watching that I'm having no thought, and I'm really proud. So golf commentator's gone, but now you've got an invisible commentator, watcher, the watcher, who's watching everything microscopically, yeah? and talking, but without talking. You get beyond that. It's like an ocean of glory, of joy. You've never been so peaceful in your life. And then you notice what I call the sharks and the whales. And they're circling. You can't see them, but you can feel Ever been underwater? Ever been underwater on a coral reef 80 feet down, diving, and you feel a little tingle in your body? A little presence, and you go, you're looking at some nice scallop, maybe rainbow scallop in Indonesia like this, and you're going, God, that's really beautiful. And you go, wow, that's really beautiful. You're taking a photograph over here. 
And then you just sort of turn around and go, oh, hello, shark, and it's like this. But it's been cruising just beyond the, the visual depths, and you can feel them. After a while, you can feel the cruisers. They're just checking you out, right? The, the pelagic fish. They're checking you out, and they're just cruising by. Or you go out to 80 feet or 90 feet, way out from the reef, and it's completely like there's 5,000 feet down that way, and there's 80 feet up. I like doing that. I just hang out like this. You know, what is it that I don't see? <laughs> you know? So this is the next level, you see? And this is the finer level that's very deep in the veins, the stuff that can blast up the surface if it's not really cleared out. The unlabeled, the un unnamed creatures, and they're volatile. I guess I call them whales and sharks. So you can do all the cathartic work you want to do at the outer level. But the vibrations, which you'll feel deep in meditation when they erupt, they erupt like, like veins vibrating, way, no thought, way down. And all of a sudden, full-blown fantasy. No fantasy for four days. Full-blown, uninterrupted, huge fantasy. And it goes on and on and on. You can watch it, though. It goes on and on. Where did that come from? Holy God. Down here. I'm suspicious. What did Karen Horn and I say about suspicion? Oh, yeah. I'm suspicious about the cathartic experiences clearing to this level. And that's usually where they boil up again and come back for a return visit like a whale or a shark. Oh, yes. Physical symptoms, breaking out in boils, uh, pus running out your ears, uh, all the classic purification things that are described in the text, uh, Christian, mystical, and, and Eastern, uh, the uh, stigmata can come out, um, boils on the forehead, bleeding from the forehead, uh, all kinds of stuff, right? Yes, yes. So that physical manifestation coming out is really good. However, if it goes on too long, I'm then suspicious. For instance, like the hopper. Because it becomes now an identity. So, we're in meditation class, and we're quiet and peaceful. Five years. Five years. All during class and in during meditation. It's completely natural, of course. So it went on for a while. It started because it's purification. The body shakes, shakers and quakers. That's where it comes from. Shaking and quaking. But it became now an identity figure of an advanced meditator. Do you remember when it stopped? What did I have to do to stop it after five years? My beloved teacher tried it, and it came back. What did I do? You built a case. You're like a lawyer. But what did I have to do? I screamed and yelled and got fierce and finally blasted it through, and it was gone. I still think it's gone. As far as I know, it's finished. 
big change. But it was huge. It was such a huge problem because it went on and on and on and on and on. It became spiritual identity. I'm holy because I'm hopping. I'm actually levitating. Naturally. Naturally levitating. <laughs> Imagine teaching like that. Very good. Carry on. I once had an entire retreat on Mahamudra, on, on Essence of Mind Retreat, in Japan with my uh, Namjoon Rinpoche. And I laughed. I laughed 10 days through every class. Everything he said was hysterically funny. I la- he let me do it for 10 days. Just kept looking at me going. <laughs> and I'm rolling on the floor. It didn't matter what he said. He's talking about essence of mind. He's talking about now breathing in this way. And actually the mudra that you take up. And a posture. <laughs> posture. <laughs> I laughed 10 days. of, And, and, and otherwise, when I was out of class, I wasn't laughing at all. I go to class and as soon as he opens his mouth, I just start chuckling. I'd be sitting there, I chuckle, he goes, looks at me like this. But it passed in 10 days. I was lucky. Otherwise, I'd still be laughing today. <laughs> so that is, the, when we talk about physical release that way, it's good if it clears. If it goes on for a while, it clears. Crying. Weeping, shaking, all kinds of stuff. Being thrown around, all kinds of physical manifestation. If there is physical release, voice release, and mental release, we know it's genuine and deep. The deepest release is the three channels. And the deepest release of all is the central channel, the hardest to get at. And that, that's where we have to do inner yoga work. And it clears up all the problems. Uh, it, the central channel work for the delusion, the, 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 the last bits of delusion, is the hardest and the most difficult. But it clears it up for good. It clears up for good. The two side channels in terms of greed, in terms of anger, get cleared up here. The two sides of your being. For women, it's primarily actually gets reversed. So it's anger over here. Uh, anger over here and greed over here. For men, it's anger over here and greed over here. The channels are actually reversed for men and women. Little known thing. Yeah? And that's why we express so much through our hands. It comes out through our hands. These are very deep. Very, very deep. Yes? Yes. Yes, they're subtle. They're extremely. Another way of saying it is they're extreme. Not really secret. They're extremely subtle. They're secret because they're hidden, because they're that subtle. And the, the idea is to clear from there. So the only thing that I've heard, I yes, that's correct. And that's why we practice inner yogas whether through Anapanasati, through this practice of the four foundations of mindfulness, or through inner yoga practices where we specifically work with those channels to open them, to allow breath to circulate through them, then you get extraordinary clearing. That's where you get some experiences, I'm speaking from personal experience, of sitting in meditation and literally being lifted up and thrown five or six feet in the air. That's how strong it can get. We're talking that level of where the energies are really moving. Yeah. yeah. yeah.
somebody do, do, do them on your own? On your own. But you better have training. <laughs> Lots of training. Yeah. yeah. Uh, my rule of thumb is I like to, depending on who it is, but most people, I like to see people study with a good med with an experienced meditation teacher in retreat and gain instruction on how you do good retreat work and get to a certain point of confidence. When I see them at a certain point of confidence and I feel really good about their, their lack of stupidity, <coughs> like doing really dumb things, like maybe what I'll do is I'll stick knives in myself because that's how I can get into my channels deeper. You know, something like that comes over people, you know. Yeah, actually, if I put a knife in here, I'd really feel better. You know, whatever it is, silly things, right? Or I'll stop eating for 10 days or, or uh, maybe I'll stand on my head. That will clear it all, you know, whatever it is. Oh, yeah, some very silly things. Then what I like to see is after that experience with the guidance of a teacher, then doing solo retreats. So right now we have, for instance, someone on Galliano doing a three-month solo retreat. And I like to see people learn to do retreat work with no contact with the teacher and nobody because then they gain great strength and great confidence because they had to work through uh, both the joys and the difficulties. But I like to see stability, and I like to see clarity, and I like to see some level where they can, they can handle that. It's very important to do. Very, very important to do. Okay. Any, any other questions? This is a vast subject. Could, could go on. Uh, you could be sleeping overnight, but uh, I don't want to do that. Any, any other questions? Yes. wrong. That's, that's one of the ones I look for is a story. Oh, now I know how it bonk. Yes, it was when I was three years old. No, no, I remember when I was just, you know, two months after birth. I've had people describe this to me. They go on and on and on and on and on. And after I say, so what changed? Nothing. Okay. That's one of the most suspicious ones is a story. Mental. Like a mental clearing, like a mental opening of release, without without a fabrication. Yeah, and and I've heard the most incredible fabrications. So I'm sure you have too. The most incredible make-believe stories around stuff, even small things, where I went, nah, it's going to come back in a week. It's it's here to stay for a while, because that story is a highly elaborated defense around it. So what I mean is you can feel it mentally because, you know what, have you all had the experience, I'm sure you have, where you're not doing anything in particular, maybe you're walking, doesn't matter, and, and your brain feels like it just lit up, or your brain felt like it cleared, like having a really, really fine latte or cappuccino, just like, oh, just a little tiny bit of caffeine, but it's natural. That kind of, did someone turn a light bulb on in the brain? That kind of thing. Or you feel, God, I feel clear now. Now I feel so rich. Now I feel so strong. Now I feel so embodied. That, that kind of, I don't even know why. Yeah. Yeah. That, that then, that's, that's those three very genuine, usually. But again, you always have to put a test. So in the tradition of yogis, yogis and yoginis, because we have women in the room, 
yogis and yoginis, there is an old practice called the Haruka practice of the fierce ones, which is you go into retreat for a year, you go into retreat for six months, you go into retreat for three months, three years, whatever it is. And traditionally in Tibet, what you did, or in India, you came down from the mountain, and guess where you went? Where would you go? Yeah, you went to a place that challenged all your emotional stuff. Let's go to the butcher shop. Yeah. Let's go to the charnel ground. Let's go to the houses of prostitution. Monks, let's go, let's go to the houses of prostitution. See how you fare. Let's go to the prisons. Let's go to the marketplace where they're dancing. Yeah, it's called the Ruka practice. Why? You want to put it to test. So you've cleared all this? My, te- my beloved teacher was so good at this. He was so good at this. Let's see how you're doing. Let's see how you're doing. Three months in retreat, in full retreat, 20 hours a day. He's giving initiation. He says to me, come on here. I had about two weeks left to go for the retreat. Come on here. Uh, I'm going down to Niagara Falls today in a, in a few hours. You want to come? I said, no, not really. He said, no, why don't you come join us? It'll be fun. Come down for a few days. Uh, I'm just coming out of a three-month intensive retreat. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. You'll be fine. Uh, anyways, pack your bags. Let's go. Ran back, packed my bags, jumped in the car, onto the 401. So he turns to me after a while, because nerv- your nervous system, just to handle that, right? How you doing? <laughs> just fine. How you doing? <laughs> Pretty fun, huh? So this is an old ancient practice, which is, yeah, you're calm. Yeah, you feel good. Yeah, you've done a nice retreat. Yeah, you might have thought you cleared all kinds of stuff up. Let's see how you do it by putting it to the test. That's for real. Let's put it to the test for real. Not just theoretically. I love everybody. I've been in retreat, and I love every creature on the planet without any difference. And I know that. You know why? Because I've told myself that. And not only have I told myself that, they've told me. Them. Dave has told me. Dave's told me. And I love everybody. And the first person you see says, oh, screw, what? You've got to put it to the test. It's real. This is real stuff. If it's not physiologically changing, it's not real. It's not a theoretical game. It's got to be physical, real, redoing the nervous system. And if it's not, go at it again and find a different way. As, what is it? What did Einstein, what's that famous quote of his quote these days that Einstein said? If it's not working, why are you trying to keep doing the same thing? Something like that, right? Einstein was good at that. If it's not, pardon? Yeah, do it. Yeah, it's a different result. Doing it over and over and over and over again. Yeah. Sometimes you have to. I think that's plenty for this evening. Is that okay? Any other questions or? Yeah. Guess what? I'm also saying tonight. There are no firm and fast rules. You're all different. You're all complicated. What works for you and what you went through may be different than what you go through and how it worked for you and how you did it is different than you. So when you get through something, you're going to start a whole new school and teach it based on, I'm sorry, I don't know your name. Yeah. 
owl, the owl method of therapy or owl's meditation world. True. Every teacher does it. As owls come to owl's meditation classes, and you're going to teach owl's method. Master owl teaches owl's method, right? And yourself? Eartha? Eartha teaches Eartha's meditation therapeutic school because that's what worked for Eartha. You see how it works? Watch for that. Just because that's the way it worked for that person doesn't necessarily mean that's going to be the way it is. But I do believe there's some deep, deep laws because I've seen it over and over and over again. And actually, when, when yogis and yoginis have been practicing for 2,500 years and passing down that oral tradition from that much experience, I generally trust it fairly well, including something like acupuncture that's been going on for over 3,000 years. A good practitioner usually know it because it's not just them. It's usually 3,000 years of tradition. When a doctor says they've got gout, I go, hmm. I was just talking to a specialist. Got gout, eh? What caused gout? We don't have a clue. And we don't even know how to treat it, except we, we, we shoot progesterone, uh, not progesterone, pregnisone at it, which, of course, damages bones and it's a serious thing, right? It's an, it, we're, we're, you do know all of us in the medical therapeutic world are in what? An infant state of knowledge and learning. Someone once told me not long ago, or five years ago, they were explaining what a true relationship, what, what really constitutes a loving, true relationship between a man and a woman in a society who's a therapist. And I said, you do know that your model of what constitutes relationship is only 30 years old in Western society and in a third therapeutic world. I said, and it's actually counter to a good majority of the people on the planet. Just so you know that. So in terms of something called psychotherapy, in terms of medicine, in terms of brain science, it's early days yet. We're all experimenting. We're experimenting. We're trying new things out. We're trying to find what the best avenues are. It's a very, very new field. 100 years. Very, very new area. It's fantastic. It's interesting. It's flowering and it's burgeoning. And thank goodness because therapy is really needed for a lot of people. So what you're doing is a great service. It's a great service. People need lots of healing, need lots of care, and it's one avenue, which is really good. Okay, I'm going to sign off for this evening. Let's share what we've done together by this powerful practice that we've done together. May it lead to the cessation of suffering for all beings. May all beings be well and happy. May all beings be established in a continuum of freedom. <laughs>